And I'm Alexander Wales. And this is episode 34. Dark Wizard of Dunkirk. So, first off, I really enjoyed it. I, I started reading it. Uh, I read maybe like Fologue in one sitting. I enjoyed that. And then I read maybe like two or three chapters in another sitting. And then I read maybe like ten chapters in like another sitting. And then I got to the chapter where... Ah, I forgot the names. Henry? Henry and the girl? The, the princess? Uh, Yeah, so it's... I think Henry and Sophia. Yeah, I really enjoyed the story, and uh, like I said, once once Henry and Sophia met met up, I think I finished the rest of the story in like one sitting, maybe one and a half, um, like a sitting and a meal. Um, and I want to first talk about the magic system because I think it's really cool. Uh, so you've got three different magic systems in the story, right? You've got the oaths, uh, you've got mind magic, and you've got spiritual magic. It's 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 suggested that there's other Oh, I should say dark magic too, right? Oaths, uh, mind magic, spiritual magic, and dark uh, dark magic. Sacrificial magic, I should say. Yeah, I, I did the world building for this story first. Uh, I think I wrote the first scene. Because mm-hmm. um, that was all that I had was that first scene. It's the first scene there. Um, they're about to sacrifice this baby. And then they like decide they can't do it. Because, you know, they're not evil, I guess. The The, the actual reality of murdering this innocent baby is is not the same as they thought it would be in their utilitarian calculations or whatever. So I wrote that very first scene, and then I did all the rest of the world building, and I kind of wanted something that was like a big world, mm-hmm. but also one that had a lot of like individual adventures to be had, and sort of going for a, like a Miyazaki Studio Ghibli mm-hmm. type thing, because there's like the animism of the spirits. But part of that world building was that there were a lot of ideas that didn't fit in this in this one kingdom where I wanted everything to take place. And so there's a lot of stuff that was like developed beyond that. And some of them get name dropped or like mentioned in passing Mm -hmm. in various places. There's um, I think like seven or eight other magic systems that are waiting in the wings for Mm -hmm. the sequel that I'll probably end up writing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, though they're the main three or four. Yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed the magic systems. First of all, distinct from each other, I think they're they're really well thought out. So the oath one is just a matter of sacrificing something that you honestly want, legitimately want and desire, and the the strength that you get from it is proportional to how much you want that oath or how important that oath is to you. Right. And how inco- how inconveniencing it is to you, even. Am I right in saying it's a purely physical uh, boost? Speed, sustenance, stamina, strength, all that kind of stuff? The majority of the novel, you see the purely physical stuff. There are a couple of... It's one of the things I might remove on editing. I should mention that this is a very rough work, because it was National Novel Writing Month. I haven't edited it. But one of the aspects of that sacrifice is that sometimes you get weird and unexpected things because of who you are rather than what your sacrifice is. So it's, it's mentioned at various like 
in probably two or three places in the entire like 170,000 some words that some people have gifts that they that are boosted through um through oath keeping mm-hmm. like it's precognition or um I think it was implied that the the mentalist at the Forsworn Citadel mm-hmm. it's implied that she gets a boost to mentalism through oath keeping because she like her oath is that she stays forever in the mental realm and never surfaces from it. Right, right. she's she's essentially just a uh, mental construct at this point. Yeah, like she has a physical body mm-hmm. that is taken care of by the the other sisters, but that she never returns to, and she's much more powerful of a mentalist as a result of that. But it's it, it's, not, it's one of those things that I might remove on editing because mm-hmm. I don't utilize it really. Right. So yeah, it's it's a great it's a great mechanic that has, like we talked about before, an inherent sense of cost. Yeah. It justifies why not everyone wants this magic system. There's a way to lose the magic. Uh, it's great. It's it's really well well made. Like, I would read a story with just this magic system in it, right? Then you've also added the mentalist one, which allows you to construct these uh, mindscapes and affect your own mood and memory and all those things through it. And more importantly, affect other people's, which is opens up this whole you know area of mental combat and espionage and personality altering and all that stuff that's another great magic system that allows for a separate realm of combat you know you can have your oath keepers that are really skilled and powerful in in physical combat and you can have your mentalists who are very useful for uh, getting secrets out of people and and um, you know studying their memories and all those kinds of things and then you've got the sacrificial magic the dark magic and in this case, you've got one or two characters. I don't remember if both fathers practice black magic, or one does the black magic and one just does uh, mentalism, but or like maybe he dabbles in the black magic too. Uh, but at least one of them is is particularly good at it. And there's this subculture of dark magic people who are hunted down and oppressed and uh, persecuted for great great reasons not great in the story but great as a storytelling explanation i loved the way you explained the justification for black magic sacrificial magic and the way people treat it particularly there's this uh, family friend who who's i think her grandmother was a was a, uh, a witch or a dark dark wizard dark witch yeah and she's still learning learning the ropes from these two more experienced dark wizards who are like cautioning her against certain things and warning her about certain things she has to expect and this great idea of like, look, your magic is built off of sacrifice. Some people are willing to make sacrifices for certain things. Other people are not willing to make sacrifices for those things. And it's human nature to blame someone besides themselves for not being willing to make that sacrifice. And, you know, if the sacrifice happens to be something that they're not willing to part with or that seems too extreme, it's very easy for them to then call you evil for that. Which I think is is inherently true and makes a good um, makes a good parallel between why this magic is considered evil and why it can be so easily misused uh, as we see from the main antagonist in the story so yeah you've got these three major magic systems that are explained you've got a fourth magic system in the spirit magic which is the most wild magic it's the least explained one it's the most just kind of intuited yeah and i feel like i would read a story about pretty much any of these as the magic system of the story but you've put them all together in the same world and i really like it especially the way they interact with one another and when you start combining the mental magic with the dark magic, the sacrificial magic, there's just all sorts of like 
fridge horror crazy stuff that can that can be done that's really neat and interesting and so yeah the, on the first level I, I feel like i want to talk about the magic i want to talk about the magic i want to congratulate you on the magic because i feel like that's probably the strongest part of the story uh, strongest part of the story implies that like other things aren't good about it which isn't the case but like i would say if i were to recommend the story to someone i would recommend it based on the magic system the same way if i would recommend mistborn to someone it would be because of the magic system so yeah i think you did a great job with the magic in the story i really enjoyed reading about them and, and the way that they reflected on the social aspects of the story yeah dark magic was not pinned down fast enough i think that's like, I, I did not know the rules for dark magic. I knew that it's like sacrifice things and you get some effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have any rules in place for it until the second year I worked on the story. This is one of those things that I think about when I think about what I'm going to have to do to edit this into a proper novel. I do think that there are quite a few things that need to be cleaned up mm-hmm. for it, for the story as a whole, but... <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's there's many things that will change on further edits, like any story. But, I mean, from my perspective, the story is more or less complete as is. Like, you know, polishing and stuff is great, but I enjoyed the hell out of it as it is. But yeah, so the magic systems is, is the first thing. The second thing I wanted to talk about was the the twist. Really well done. It's the kind of thing that you set this, this mystery up of this king that is supposedly acting very irrationally. You know, he's doing things that... From the outside, you're like, you know, can't he see what harm he's causing? Uh, can't he see what he's doing with his, his son and how he's going to... There's, there's a sense early on where you don't quite know if the son is going to be evil or not, which I think you did well. Like, it's it's not a foregone conclusion that this is going to be the antagonist of the story. It, it, it even, there's even some hints that can probably be even further uh, solidified with, with rewrites um, that, you know, he might come out okay. But nevertheless, he turns out to be the antagonist. It's a great, it's a great moment when you spend this whole story thinking, why is the king not treating his son like the heir? Not, why is he, why is he allowing him to drift farther and farther away and that kind of thing? And when you find out what the reason is, it's very, it very much justifies everything that you just, the, the twist is really well done. Yeah, that was, that was one of the very first things for the story. Like after mm-hmm. the first scene, I, I, um, I had an idea scratch pad sitting around. Mm-hmm. I I still do it. It has like 40 or 50 things on it. And that was one of the first that I decided was going to be in this story. That was the seed that the story grew around more or less besides the uh, sacrificial aspect? Yeah. So if you'll indulge me talking about story process a little bit. Uh-huh. When this story started out, it was, it was my attempt at writing comedy. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, I'm going to write, I'm going to write like a Terry Pratchett comedy right right and that didn't happen <laughs> it didn't happen at all i got i think i got to uh them like pulling the teeth out of this guy <laughs> who they just murdered and i was like oh okay this isn't quite Com- yeah comedy is not really my strong suit i should probably stop trying to force this to be a comedy but originally i think it sophia was going to be she was always going to be this rebellious princess, but I think that when when it was still a comedy, Henry had he had lived this sort of sheltered life, and so they were going to have this romance that was going to start in the like second chapter mm-hmm. originally, right? First chapter is some prophe- prophecy stuff, and then second chapter is they just meet each other on his like first day out mm-hmm. of the house, basically. 
so she was going to be this rebellious princess and he was going to meet her and just be this dark wizard who, and they're going to have this comedy of errors kind of where she's leaving, living this, this double life and no one knows that she's the princess. Mm -hmm. And he is also living this double life because no one knows that he's the dark wizard and they have all these misunderstandings between them. It was going to be hilarious. (laughs) I was like, Oh, that is the greatest point for this magical crown to be because then I can just have it appear on her head and she will know that something horrible has gone wrong back home mm-hmm. and she has to like stop being this rebellious princess and like figure it out some of that obviously made it in the story still but the crown got brought in because i thought it was a good way to change the story i guess mm-hmm. and then the the rest of the story came after that because i need to figure things out like you know why is this crown appearing on her head mm-hmm. like what's this calamity that's happened um, she obviously needed to have an older brother or sister, because if she's an only child, then she's the heir to the crown, and her rebelliousness is more selfish, I guess. Yeah, and I think that interaction worked really well. You've got she has these goals and dreams; she has no reason to expect to rule. Responsibility and greatness are kind of thrust upon her. You show how she has to kind of deal with this new reality of my dad's dead. Something probably happened to my brother too. My brother might be dead too. Now I've got to be this queen. I didn't want to be, I can't go traveling the world and I've got to go home and figure out what's going on. And it might be assassins there waiting to kill me too and all that, which makes for a great moment. I really enjoyed it. If it helps you feel any better, by the way, the first, the, the prologue with Harushin and Omar, Omar, yes, with Harushin Omar, um, very much did feel like a, a opening for a comedy. Like I, I read it with very, um, Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams kind of tones in my head. Yeah. There are a bunch of first drafts of other other scenes and other chapters where that are more similar in in tone. Mm-hmm. I don't think the tonal dissonance of moving into other stuff really hurts. I, I'm gonna have to have I, I've actually so far not had anyone beta read this. The I mean I, I posted it to my website but I didn't mm-hmm. I sort of ex- told people while I was writing it that I didn't want much in the way of feedback. Mm-hmm. Unless it was like, hey, you're doing a good job. Because, again, that's one of those things that if I'm trying to write really fast, uh, it'll just slow me down if people are like, hey, this thing sucks. And then that'll be going through my head when I'm writing and I'll stall out. So you're, you're actually one of the first people to give me full feedback on the story. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's one of the... I think that there's more room for... It being lighthearted. It's not a very lighthearted story. Uh, I guess some of the, some of the Henry and Sophia stuff, which is a fair amount of the story, I consider lighthearted. But my other problem as we're talking is that I have not reread the story since finishing it. So I only have my experience of, of having actually written it, not, not having gone back through and read anything. So. I guess I'll trust your I'll trust your judgment. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, characters were all pretty well done. The main characters particularly felt enjoyable. There's this second tier of the story where the uh, oathkeeper is going around looking for Henry, and I think it gives a good a good angle on on what his life is like, what oathkeeper's life is like. I kind of, I guess, I kind of expected him to play more of a part in the climax, but it's interesting. Like his, his, what he goes through is, is interesting too. So I, I enjoyed that regardless. There is one, 
So the magic systems, when you designed them, did you specifically try to make a scale from like harder to softer magics? Like, did you specifically want there to be a mix between really hard magic and really soft magic? To some extent, I think I am aware of the like hard soft magic access, but I wasn't consciously thinking about it except that I wanted the magics to be different from each other. Mm -hmm. But if they had all been hard magics, I, I probably would have been fine with that. Spiritualism is like the interacting with the spirits was supposed to be more of a, a social thing, right? Mm -hmm. Charisma check. Yeah, like a charisma check, but partly like understanding what a spirit is and what it wants and how to, how to talk to it and convince it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, which I think necessarily makes for a softer magic. If you have a magic that's like based on talking to people or pseudo people, uh, that's always going to be softer. I think that spiritualism came out a little bit softer than I'd like, but I'm not sure how I'd fix it. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things that I might not fix. Gotcha. Because I don't know how to fix it. Well, the softer one, the softest one by far is is obviously the spirit magic, right? Yeah. Uh, the other three being fairly, fairly hard actually. Like, I think they're 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 pretty they're pretty well understandable. Uh, though I, I had no trouble with any of them really. The ma the mind one maybe a little bit. There's questions you could have about like what the limits of it are and, and stuff like that. But actually, on uh, I think I think you did a good job explaining each each aspect as it became relevant for whatever would end up happening next in the story. The softest one obviously being the spirit magic. Not not that you have to make it a harder magic. Obviously, it takes up much less um, screen time than the other ones too. So it would it would feel I think somewhat clunky if you tried to make it harder even. Right. And maybe it's something you can do in a sequel. But the climax of the story does sort of hinge on her magic. Yeah. And I can't quite remember what my problem with it was, but it felt a little bit off. So, and I'm sure that when you when you reread it for edits, there'll be something in there that you can you can probably improve upon in terms of either either how it works or or how it's explained. But it feels like she basically uses sacrificial magic through spirit magic. Spirits are essentially the ones responsible for sacrificial magic in the first place, right? Yeah, and that all, like, dark magic is happening... But, well, the idea is that all dark magic and all oath-keeping are both mediated through spirits in the spirit realm. Mm -hmm. The problem with that, I, I do agree that I think the climax is serviceable. Like, if I read that in a like fantasy novel I'd pick up, I, I, I'd be like, oh, okay, but you get your yeah, climax, yeah. whatever. Right, right. Um, I, I don't, like, want to write like that. Where I am just like, hey, here's a mostly serviceable climax. Right, right. It, it's perfectly not not that you have to write rational fiction in everything that you ever write, right? But um, it's it's definitely normal for a a regular fiction plot for for a rational fiction, which the rest of the story reads as, and I presume you you'd kind of want to write. It, yeah, it, it could it could use some touching up. Yeah, you well, I mean, you don't want more of a a build up to it, mm -hmm. right? You yeah. want these individual pieces that are talked about and uncovered as you go. Um, Sophia's like a spiritualist. She's like the first spiritualist that mm -hmm. anyone can recall in like hundreds of years or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's okay for no one to know that much about it and for her to experience firsthand what it means and what its limitations and stipulations are and stuff like that. It just it need more foreshadowing, I think. More foreshadowing and more explanation but it has to be 
for the climax to actually work, it has to be a sort of piecemeal mm-hmm. explanation. There's also a kind of a implications problem where, like, even if you, I, I mean, like, I think it, in the moment it's it's explained okay. Like, I got what she was doing as she was doing it, and like how it, how it turns out to be like a, a great solution to her her problem. I think implication wise, though, now you've got this immensely powerful spirit that she can forge contracts with as simple as scratch a line in the dirt, you know, I don't know, throw a berry across it, and the field on the other side of the line maybe, like, grows hundreds of pounds of food. Something like that. You know, like, I, I don't know... I don't know what the limits of this of this new combination of spirit... Of, of, I guess, not combination of spirit and dark magic, but more primal self-forging uh, contract is. On-the-fly kind of, like, direct, direct contract forging. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes me excited for a sequel. Uh-huh. To, to write a sequel, because I'm like... I just like obscenely powerful people, <laughs> like Metropolitan Man or Bluer Shade of White. You just have you have obscenely powerful magic that can do a lot of things and solve a lot of problems. And then you can't write a story about you know someone solving all these like problems that are now easy. Mm. You find the cracks where there are things that the magic can't do, and then your story re- starts revolving around those things, mm-hmm. which is basically basically the basis of Bluer Shade of White is that it it's about what magic can't do mm-hmm. and it's sort of about the personal stuff that comes up because of because of what magic does and doesn't do and I don't know that that's what I've always liked about Superman mm-hmm. for Superman stories is like he's obscenely powerful he can do all these things but he can't be everywhere at once and he can't solve all the problems of the world and if he tries it's all going to come like crumbling apart and so it you, you turn into like a psychological story. All my favorite Superman are, stories are like that. But so I like ending on the implication that Sophia is now the most powerful person mm-hmm. in Dunkirk because it sort of sets up in my mind, at least not on the page um, in my mind, it sets up this, these future conflicts that are not going to be about future conflicts that are not going to be solved with spiritualism. They're going to be solved through, diplomacy or they're going to be solved by uncovering mysteries she's 16 17 something coming into power with two-thirds of the oath keepers are gone some of them are obviously went against her or something the kingdom is not in a good place except that except for her specifically and she's like the linchpin of all power in the kingdom mm-hmm. and then there's all this like background stuff there are like dukes trying to get power there are foreign powers that Dunkirk has been lending Oath Keepers out to for like decades now, stuff that her father set up and never told her about. And all of that is sort of pitted against this immense amount of power that cannot solve those problems. So I I, I, I do agree that the you look at the ending and then you're like, wait, doesn't this mean <laughs> like uh, a lot of stuff can change and like a lot of problems are trivial now to some extent? Yeah, but that's kind of it's kind of what I like. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I, th- I think all the epilogue scenes after that are like character driven rather than, you know, it's, it's Sophia sitting in front of her father's grave and it's Henry sh- talking. His, his yeah. landscape, yeah. It's, it's about sort of wrapping things up. I don't know. It, it's one of those things that is liable to change. I actually really need to get cracking on editing Dark Wizard Junker because I, I think I feel best about this story. Out of all the like things that I could be editing, I mean, I I definitely think it could be f- published work for sure. 
So, yeah, I mean, the sooner you can get on editing it and start shipping it out, shopping it out to... Um, yeah, agents. and mm-hmm. Yeah, but I need to like reread it and stuff. I, I, I do think that the ending is... There were a lot of scenes that I wrote where I was like, yeah, this is great. And then I don't look I don't look over them when mm-hmm. I'm doing National Novel Writing Month. And so I can't be like, you know, usually what happens to me, and this is just personal relationship with how I write, um, I'll write a scene and I'll be like, yeah, this is great. And then I go back over it and I'm like, oh, this is not great. Mm-hmm. That's part of why I think I like Dark Wizard Dunkirk so much is because I have not gone over a lot of it and I haven't had time to... To be like, oh, this is, you know, this, this needs to change and that needs to change. But the ending was one of those things where I was just thinking to myself, this doesn't feel quite like it, like even in the moment. Mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes I come across problems in writing and I'm like, how am I going to solve this? Like, it's not it's not a solvable problem. I've, I've abandoned works that were like as long as Metropolitan Man because I, I came across problems that I just I thought were core to the story. And it just took me that many words to figure out yeah. what the core problem was. And I had to just junk it or start over from scratch. But I think the problems with Dark Wizard Junkirk are, especially with the ending, are all fairly easily fixable. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on that. Because again, I haven't reread it. So. How many plot threads did you notice? One, two, three, four. Four major ones, and then the subplot threads kind of just tied into them. So there was the three main characters plus the uh, the Oathkeeper. Those four had yeah. four different plot threads uh, that all tied together eventually. And subplots were the kings that we kind of just you know was supporting you know supporting the other plots in terms of what he was doing, and the questions of the the danger to to uh, Henry's parents. Yeah, there were there were a couple things that were never resolved one one that you pointed out to me previously was omar and hirish it, it's never i knew about this one mm-hmm. but it's never discussed what they did the sacrifice for what they want to do the sacrifice for yeah and it's sort of set up and i just i guess it was a combination of me not having a great answer and me thinking that it would make the story weaker to say mm-hmm. right because like you don't yeah you don't necessarily even need to answer it right it's not something that ever will come up again necessarily Maybe it will in the sequel, but it's not something that has to come up, and it could just be a enduring mystery for right. for the readers to be like, you know, what could possibly have made them so desperate? And then when you when you know that they're more moral practitioners practitioners of black magic, I think it's justified. Yeah. To give them the benefit of the doubt, like whatever they were doing with it, it must have been something big, but they just couldn't pull themselves through. Yeah. That I and it was one of those things where I had intended to answer it when I had an answer, mm-hmm. and then I. Just never got an answer. Um, like I, I didn't like my answers. I didn't like anything that I came up with. I mean, it could, I think it could have been just save five babies. Yeah, <laughs> it could have been. Yeah, no, I, I did, I did think about that. I made a, a Reddit thread uh-huh. that was like, uh, what in in our rational, like mm. what what would be worth sacrificing a baby for, and then you get a lot of the answers that are very typical of of our rational, which is like. Oh, you, like sacrifice a sick baby for a healthy baby, or you know, sacrifice one baby for two babies. But I just I didn't find anything that I that I loved that I that I thought was like really neat and character revealing, and I didn't find anything that you know because different people have different thresholds, right? For as far as sacrifice goes, mm-hmm. and that's that's part of what Sophia's problem with 
black magic is. It's right, the right. very idea of you push a fat guy off a bridge to stop a trolley that's going to kill five people. <laughs> that is morally correct, but it feels bad. And so you sort, sort of shy away from it. And so if you, if I were to decide that, you know, Omar Hirsch's limit was X, then the problem is that for some readers, X is way too high. And for other readers, X is way too low. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, it's sort of better left to individual readers to interpret because it'll make the story better for them individually, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, I think so. So two last points. Uh, one quick one. The brother, whose name I keep forgetting. Rowan? Prince Rowan, is that his name? Yeah, that sounds about right in my head. Yeah, he's, um, he's named after the uh, the tree. Okay. Which is like used by witches mm-hmm. in the real world, supposedly. <laughs> that makes sense. So yeah, Rowan is, in your mind, shaped by his circumstances, or is there actually something off about him from the beginning? Like it's it's this kind of like idea that he was driven to be the way he was by not having love from his father and and being treated coldly and all that stuff but there's also like hints that from a young age even he was treated with uh, suspicion and and like foreboding and i don't know if it was just because they were like oh you know we don't know if he's actually the king's son or not or if it was because he actually did things like you know torture puppies or something yeah in my mind a lot of it is nurture aspect Mm -hmm. because like his mother has this and I'm hoping I'm talking about stuff that actually made it in because I, I sometimes write stuff and I delete it and I think it's in the work. His mother makes this confession about having like smothered him to stop him from crying when he was an infant, mm-hmm. right? So it's partly like psychological damage from abuse, and then when he's like five years old, three or five or something like that, his mother leaves entirely, mm-hmm. and so it's just him and like the people raising him and his father and his father's withholding because his father isn't a hundred percent sure that he's right there's some blame yeah there's there's some there's some transferred blame and there's some his father would like to believe that he's a legitimate child but thinks that he isn't Mm -hmm. and so there's that that you know contributes and then some of it is him going down a slippery slope of utilitarianism like if you could kill a dog to save a baby right right, right. like i'd I'd do that a hundred percent but especially if you are growing up in a society that says never kill dogs for any reason then you start questioning what society says about everything because they're wrong on this one thing. And you sort of are like, okay, then I don't know. It's one of the things I think about a lot. Yeah. yeah. Right. If if your society tells you things that are obviously wrong, then you're sort of forced to forge your own morality. Mm -hmm. And that morality is not going to be time tested and you're probably not going to have outside help in creating it. So you're likely to get it wrong. But then so in, in my mind, he's not lost, I guess, until he starts mucking around in his own head. And he starts sacrificing things in like his, his mind. Like he's, his happy memories and stuff. Yeah, like. his happy. he starts sacrificing happy memories he had with his father. Yeah, that was the point when I basically was like, okay, I guess there's no coming back from this now. Because he's, he's fundamentally changing who he is as a person. Yeah. So in, in my mind, he's, he's not lost until, until somewhere around there when he starts carving away parts of himself that he thinks that he doesn't need. And, you know, before that, he's sort of a well-intentioned extremist, maybe, or he's a well-intentioned utilitarian. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's only when he starts, when he starts like carving away little pieces of himself in the course of experimentation or because he thinks he doesn't need them, that he's, he sort of turns more fully to villainy. But I don't know how much of that is, 
like explicit in the text or even implicit, but that's that's how it was in my head. Yeah. Okay, so last thing. I don't know if you expected me to bring this up, but kind of have to, right? The prophecy. Oh, yeah, the prophecy. Just to end on a potentially long note, but maybe it won't be too yeah. long. I don't know. Um, okay, so why did you include the prophecy and what what do you what do you think of it? Like, I know it's obviously, again, like still alpha uh, version of the story. Do you think the prophecy is necessary in the story? Like, do you are you satisfied with where it is or what? I'm mostly satisfied. It's it's a holdover from the days when this was a comedy mm-hmm. to some extent. Like the the prophecy itself is not funny at all, but um, <laughs> it's the opposite, I, I, quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I I had this uh this early draft scene where Henry and Sophia have just met, and she she's talking to him and she's like says in cryptic tones that she's the subject of a prophecy and it's been like hanging over her head right, her right. whole life, and then he, the chapters from his perspective and he's like he's like oh yeah well. I don't really understand the the issue with that because I've like heard nine different prophecies about myself through my life, and then you know in the course of writing those other prophecies, I was like, well, I don't that that is funny-ish, but I don't really need nine other prophecies, and the story took a di- turn in a different direction. Right, right. Uh, I don't think this prophecy is is necessary. It's necessary in that facilitates some of the conflict between Ventor and. Sophia, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know. I, I think it would be easy to rewrite it without the prophecy, but I think it'll probably it'll probably stay. I think it's cryptic enough. It's cryptic enough that you don't that doesn't spoil the ending. Right. Especially the there's a the phrase the dark wizard, right? And that's ambiguous until the reader knows before the characters do, and then it's a point of I guess ironic tension. Uh so I mean, obviously, you know that for me, prophecies are are just yeah yeah yeah. I, know. Uh, I, and, and I don't know I, how many. I, I wrote this prophecy like uh, two and a half years ago, right, which right. was before we started doing these podcasts. So. <laughs> uh, I I don't know how many other readers like agree with me, obviously, but for me, it was it, it kind of like I was okay with the prophecy until I got a sense for what the plot was like was, and I was then after that point, I was basically like, okay, so the only really important part of this prophecy seems to be the justification for why Henry is important to anyone other than his parents. Yeah. Like, that's what draws him kind of into things. But I think it wouldn't be too hard to draw him in anyway. And for, for readers like me, it definitely did it did sap some tension from the story. Just Not just the presence of a prophecy in general, but you did a good, like, you did a good job of making, making the ending ambiguous not knowing if it would be end in, end in ruin or it'll be terrible or whatever right uh it's not like a prophecy that that promises a good ending or anything like that but there were a few times where henry basically was like i know you're upset with me and i know i did things that ups- that made you angry and i know you have reasons to be upset with me and my my parents and you know i wouldn't blame you if you were angry but there's this prophecy that says i have to protect you so can we get past the part where you're upset and just go back to he doesn't say it like this obviously but it's there was just this sense of like yeah there's the prophecy so like we can't Sophia knows she can't be too angry with with Henry there's reasons that compel them to essentially stay together and be together besides them enjoying each other's company and stuff yeah so so yeah that that for me was was a little bit like the character agency was was a little bit undercut there i would i would have been more interested in 
how they would have interacted without the prophecy, essentially saying, your lives are intertwined, deal with it. Yeah. I think the other thing prophecy did is get Ventor to Lushampur, because mm-hmm. he has no reason to be there otherwise. That can be, I think, rewritten as well. Because, I mean, well, no. You mean you mean get him to Lushampur when the princess runs away? Yeah, when the princess runs away and then the first time. Because otherwise, I, in the original draft of the story, he was just following the princess the entire time. Right. Like from from when she from from when she first left, and so when they first meet up, he's already following, he's already following her, but then it didn't make that much sense to me because like he's he's so much faster, I guess, which is already sort of a, I you're walking on foot and you're trying to find someone who you've been who who's using fake identities and like changing their hair and, and whatever that in a pre-information age. That seems like it'd be really, really difficult to me. Mm-hmm. I've always thought that, like, how easy it would be in the, like, 15th century to just, like, stab someone to death and then just go to the next town and no one would ever know because there are no fingerprints or DNA or anything. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I think, I think about removing the prophecy and what that would entail for the plot. But I, I, I've tried my best to not have it do what we talked about in our prophecy episode, mm-hmm. which I, I mean, I already, already written this. uh, (laughs) when we recorded that not have it drive or resolve conflict we'll probably have to edit see that i'll I'll have to look at that conversation between sophia and henry because there's you know the the phrase savior was also ambiguous Mm -hmm. right because it's not clear what he if he is the savior then it's not clear what he's going to be saving whether it's going to be like the kingdom or the princess or something else entirely. But I am not sure I did that correctly. I have not changed. I don't believe this prophecy since like that's what scene scene two mm-hmm. of this. I, I wrote it and then I didn't change it all. And I might actually have to change it at some point, but they dissect it so much that I'm kind of worried about editing that. Right. And it like informs what people do. <laughs> Yeah, the removal of the prophecy would definitely require rewriting some other parts of the story, too. Yeah. I will have to get someone who does not dislike prophecy uh, yes, yes. To, to beta read. I was just going to say, you know, fi- find someone who is less prejudiced against prophecies and, and see what they think. Yeah. Okay, I think I think that's probably it. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and tune in next time.